This sermon was delivered at Grand Avenue Baptist Church, a gospel-centered church in Ames, Iowa. Hear more sermons and learn more about Grand Avenue at gabcames.org. Today's scripture is from Isaiah 66. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For this is what the Lord says, I will make peace flow to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flood. You will nurse and be carried on her hip and bounced on her lap. As a mother comforts her son, I will comfort you. You will be comforted in Jerusalem. You will see, you will rejoice, you will flourish like grass. Then the Lord's power will be revealed to his servants. But he will show wrath, show his wrath against his enemies. Look, the Lord will come with fire, his chariots like the whirlwind, to execute his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment on all humanity with his fiery sword, and many will be slain by the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who has spoken to us in these last days through the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the the glory that we see in him, your glory displayed, showing us our salvation through his judgment. Lord, we're thankful that you have spared us from your wrath and that you had promised us a new heavens and a new earth. Lord, we ask this morning that as your word is preached, that you would rid our hearts of every distraction, that you would banish Satan and his demonic forces in the name of Jesus, that he would not be able to snatch away the word of the gospel or choke it out with the riches of the world. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come in power as your word is preached and would revive the hearts of your people, granting us fresh faith in the finished work of Jesus, granting us renewed repentance and devotion to following and being conformed into the image of Christ, granting us fresh courage and compulsion to go to the ends of the earth with the message of the gospel. And we pray for those this morning who do not know Jesus, that you would grip their hearts and their minds and keep them from being able to turn away from your word, cause them to listen and to hear intently and change their hearts so that they would repent and believe. Father, give us great joy in believing and teach us to be a people who tremble at your word as our only source of hope because forgiveness is found in you. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you've been joining us for our men's and women's Bible studies, and if you haven't, there's still time to do that, you'll know that this next week we enter into Revelation 17. And we will meet this week a woman on whose forehead is written a name. 
Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of earth. And from this chapter on through the end of the book of Revelation, John presents us in his vision with two different entities. One is the city of Babylon, the enemy of God's people, the place where those who rebel against God reside. And the other is the city of Jerusalem, which is the true people of God. And all of humanity is divided between these two cities. There is no third option. You either belong to Babylon or you belong to Jerusalem. And this division shouldn't surprise us since because from the fall and from the giving of the promise, God has divided humanity into only two camps. There are those who are the offspring of the serpent, the enemy of God, and those who belong to the offspring of the woman. And Revelation ends with God's people rejoicing over two things. The first is they rejoice over the sudden and complete destruction of Babylon. And the second is they rejoice over the sudden and complete arrival of the new Jerusalem. And so listen a bit to what we hear from Revelation chapter 18. Woe, woe, the great city where all those who have ships on the sea became rich from her wealth, for in a single hour she was destroyed. Rejoice over her, heaven, and you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment she passed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a stone like a large millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, In this way, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down violently and never be found again. And when God's people see the destruction of God's enemies, Babylon thrown into the sea and into a lake of fire, this is what their response is. Alleluia! That is, praise the Lord. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. Because He has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His servants that was on her hands. And a second time they said, Alleluia! Because her smoke ascends forever and ever. Alleluia! Because... Our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has prepared herself. If you know anything about Handel's Messiah, you probably know the Alleluia Chorus, which comes from Revelation chapter 18. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent, Reigneth, and he shall reign forever and ever. But have you ever noticed where the Alleluia chorus comes in Handel's Messiah? It follows Psalm chapter 2, in which the psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage? And why do they rebel against the Messiah? And the Messiah's response is, He shall hold them in derision and laugh at them, and he shall dash them to pieces with a rod of iron. 
And the response that Handel gives, which is the right response because it's what's happening in Revelation 18, the response to the Messiah dashing his enemies to pieces with a rod of iron is, Alleluia! For our God reigns forever. Revelation ends and the Bible concludes with two stark and simultaneous realities. The eternal salvation of God's people and the eternal destruction of God's enemies. And this is where Isaiah ends his prophetic ministry. You would do well to read Isaiah 66 each week as you work your way through the rest of Revelation and see what connections you can make. Isaiah ends by reminding his listeners and reminding us that there are only two destinations, eternal life or eternal death. Look at the last two verses of our passage. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make will remain before me, this is the Lord's declaration, so your offspring and your name will remain. All humanity will come to worship me from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. God's making a new people who will worship him and their faithfulness and worship will never be broken. It will go on forever. And as they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For their worm will never die. Their fire will never go out. And they will be a horror to all humanity. Isaiah ends with this picture because he is reminding God's people that this coming salvation and this coming damnation is greater than the earthly realities that they knew. God's salvation that is coming is not the mere renovation of some Middle Eastern real estate. The Lord has promised a new heavens and a new earth, an all-new restored universe where his people will remain with him forever. The offspring of Israel, which will be made up of those from every nation who believe in his promised servant, they will worship God without ceasing. Without ceasing. But outside of the earthly Jerusalem, there, is, there was a garbage dump. They could have walked outside it in Isaiah's day. And that garbage dump burned continually. And in the same way, Isaiah is reminding us that outside the new Jerusalem, there will be a place of fire where those who rebelled against God and his Messiah will burn forever. And that's what makes this chapter and all of Isaiah so urgent and important. The end that he is talking about is forever. Eternal ecstasy or agony. And we cannot afford to belong to the wrong city. Now Isaiah's message would have special meaning after Babylon invaded Judah, destroyed the temple, and carried the people of God off into exile in Babylon. We've seen how he promised deliverance from Babylon through Cyrus. And they would return to Jerusalem and they would rebuild the temple. But Isaiah is reminding Israel and reminding us that being a true Israelite or a true Babylonian is not a matter of mere externals. 
It's a matter of how the heart responds to God. In fact, we will see that citizens of the true Jerusalem and citizens of wicked Babylon can, for a time, coexist in the same city, even in the same house of worship. Which should be a warning to us this morning. In verses 1 through 2, Isaiah drives home the point that the Lord cannot be confined to an earthly location, not even to His temple in Jerusalem. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where would where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things, and so they all came into being. Only a fool would believe that the temple in Jerusalem could contain the fullness of the Lord. It was a meeting place for God and the mediator of His people. But nothing in all of creation, not even all creation itself, is sufficient to house God. And that fact should remind Israel and remind us that being true worshipers goes far beyond externals. Now, rebuilding the temple was important. But we should remember that before they ever went into exile, when they were originally condemned, they had the temple. It was back in Isaiah 1 that God was condemning them for their worship in the temple because it was done without true hearts of worship. That's what got them in trouble in the first place. And so as one author says, Isaiah was painfully aware of the capacity of human beings to misuse it, to focus on the temple itself instead of the God of the temple, to to corrupt it with perfunctory and impure worship. Isaiah understood very well that physical restoration was not enough. Unless there was a spiritual renewal, the future would simply repeat the sins of the past. And so we see in the verses that follow that coexisting in Jerusalem after their return and after the rebuilding of the temple were both true and counterfeit worshipers living and worshiping side by side. In verse 2, the Lord speaks of true worshipers. He declares, I will look favorably upon this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, trembles at his word. This is who the Lord looks favorably upon. This is who comes to the Lord's temple, and the Lord declares them to be righteous. The humble worshiper. That is the one who stands far off and takes the lowest place. He approves of the worshiper who is submissive or contrite in spirit. That, as one author explains, refers to one who is conscious of sin and weakness in the presence of God. They come with empty hands knowing that they have nothing in themselves that would require God to receive them. The Lord approves of the worshiper who trembles at His word. That is, as we saw in Psalm 130 in our confession of sin, that We fear the Lord. They fear the Lord because with Him, forgiveness is found. They come trembling before His Word because it is their only source and hope of mercy. And they are willing to trust and obey it no matter how painful it might be. What do we see here? We see that true worship is a matter of the heart. 
humbling yourself before the Lord because you know your sin and you know your need and you tremble before his word as your only source of hope. True worship that God approves of, the one that comes to his temple and walks away justified is the one who comes in a posture of faith, looking to God for mercy on the basis of grace and nothing in themselves. In verse 3, the Lord describes the worship that he hates, and it is a shocking description. One person slaughters an ox, another kills a person. One person sacrifices a lamb, another breaks a dog's neck. One person offers a grain offering, another offers pig's blood. One person offers incense, another praises an idol. He describes eight individual worshipers here. And each line begins with a person performing an orthodox act. That is a sacrifice that was commanded in the law of Moses to be offered in the temple. Externally, they were doing what the law told them to do. But every time it is followed by another person who is performing an abomination, something utterly forbidden by the law. In this case, sacrificing human beings, dogs, and pigs to idols. Verses 4-6 through six give us a clearer description of what's going on here. In verse 4, the Lord says that He will punish them because I called and no one answered. I spoke and they did not listen. These were not people who heeded His call to repent and believe. These were not people who trembled before the message of the coming servants. He will punish them because they did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. They chose their own ways with arrogant, proud, scoffing hearts instead of trembling before His Word. In verse 5, the Lord says that He will punish them for persecuting their brothers, that is, true believers, in the name of the Lord. He speaks to those who tremble at His Word and were being persecuted because the destruction of God's enemies is a message of comfort to God's people. He says to those who tremble at His Word, Hear the Word of the Lord, you, your brothers who hate and exclude you for My name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified so that we can see your joy. But they will be put to shame. Look at this picture of those who persecute God's people in the name of God using religious language, orthodox language. Externally, they appear to be part of God's people. They speak words of religious piety. They profess to be concerned about the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. But inwardly, they hated those who received God's word in humble faith. And they wanted to exclude them. To exalt themselves over them. And so they use their skill with religious language to set up standards that preserve their positions of power and authority and privilege over others. And their self-righteous obsession with the external standards produced in their hearts partisanship and power struggles, theological hatred and religious persecution. 
And that's a place that we can all so easily fall. I know there were years where I lived in that. Priding myself on how orthodox I was and the way that our church was and in the way that my doctrine was and finding my own justification and being able to look down my nose on that American church that is getting it all so wrong. All these commandments, all these condemnations here refer to the worshipers described back in verse 3. And if you look back in verse 3, you will notice how God condemns them. All these, all of these worshipers described in verse 3 and in the condemnations that follow, all of them, each of them have chosen their ways and delight in their abhorrent practices. Every one of those eight worshipers receives the same assessment. They have chosen their own ways over God's ways. And they delight in their abhorrent practices. The Lord calls slaughtering an ox, sacrificing a lamb, or offering a grain or incense offering, as prescribed by the law, abhorrent. He hates it. And he will pour his wrath out upon it. In verse 17, the Lord speaks of those who dedicate and purify themselves to enter the groves following their leader, eating meat from pigs, vermin, and rats. They will perish together. Here he's describing pagan fertility rituals, the worship of idols. But you'll notice that they receive the same condemnation and punishment as those who were sacrificing lambs in the temple. God puts temple worship alongside pagan worship and says that if your heart is not humble and contrite and trembling before my word, your temple worship is no different than pagan worship. I hate it just as much, and I will damn it just as much. We can stand or sit in church this morning looking down our snotty noses at all the churches in America that get things so wrong, priding ourselves in how we get things so right. And if our external orthodoxy is happening in this worship service with a heart of arrogance that hates genuine believers in Jesus, we might as well be joining Sam Smith in a satanic worship service at the Grammys in terms of being acceptable to God because it is no different. What's going on here? The Lord is illustrating that the Israelites can externally conform to orthodox worship and be rejected by Him because they are counterfeit worshipers. They draw near to the Lord through their external forms of worship and their words, but their hearts are far from Him. And so when it comes to being acceptable to God, they might as well be sacrificing humans, dogs, and pigs. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, 
greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. On the last day, at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be many people who stand before him and point to their lives of external orthodoxy. Lord, Lord, do you see how we so rightly interpreted Scripture, held to the right doctrines, exposed error, and participated in a church that had biblical preaching and practice. And yet, because they did all of these things, these good and right things, with proud, arrogant hearts, gloating in their own rightness, and looking down their noses at everyone else who got it wrong, Jesus will say to them, go away. I never knew you. If orthodoxy is not the overflow of humble faith in Jesus, then in terms of it being acceptable to God, it's no different than pagan rituals. And so I would ask you, where is your heart this morning? Do you sit here knowing yourself to be the chief of sinners, aware of your insufficiency before God, Trembling before the glorious word of the gospel, the only place that forgiveness may be found. Or do you sit with an orthodox posture that masks an internal life of pride and self-righteous hypocrisy? How we answer that question matters because counterfeit worshipers will be punished by God forever. In verse 4, the Lord says, So I will choose their punishment, and I will bring on them what they dread. Why is it that we act like hypocrites? Because we're trying to protect ourselves, to, to avoid destruction and poverty and death. We want health and, and wealth and life. And that's why these people use religion as they do. They cover their bases in orthodoxy, hoping that they can, through their external works, prevent God from condemning them, all the while their hearts don't love and hope in God. And they use their skill with Scripture to persecute and exclude true believers because not having a righteousness outside themselves found through Jesus Christ, they only have a righteousness in themselves. And therefore, they need to find other believers that they condemn so that they can prove themselves to be in the right over and above them. So the Lord will give them what they dread, seeking to keep their lives. They will lose them forever. In verse 6 we hear, A sound of uproar from the city, a voice from the, trump, from the temple, the voice of the Lord paying back his enemies what they deserve. 
They wouldn't listen to the voice of God through the prophet proclaiming the hope of the Messiah. So now they will listen to the voice of the Lord proclaiming their judgment. God will speak from his temple and his voice will give them not only what they dread, but what they deserve. The punishment will fit the crime. And the crime of rejecting the eternal and unending and unmeasurable glory of God is eternal, unending, unmeasurable wrath. This time, the punishment will not be carried out by the armies of Assyria or of Babylon. In verses 15 through 17, we see that the Lord himself comes with chariots of fire. His army, the Lord himself, will execute judgment, and a fury of fire will be their death, a death in which we see their worm never dies and their flame never extinguishes. Eternal conscious torment under the wrath of God. But this is not the case for God's people. True worshipers will be relieved of the curse And they will flourish in eternal joy and comfort that flows from God. In verses 7 through 8, the Lord describes a sudden and pain-free birth. You remember that in the curse given for sin back in Genesis 3, part of that that was that her pains in childbirth would be multiplied. But here, that curse is removed before she even feels a pang. The labor and delivery is over and the child is delivered. In this birth, the curse will be gone. This birth is the sudden deliverance of God's people, the sudden birth of God's new people. And this is what God would do in a moment on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. Where all of his righteousness was fulfilled in the righteous life of Christ and in his death under the curse for our sins. In a moment, his kingdom arrives and would suddenly overtake the world. But for those who had suffered for decades waiting in Babylon, or for those of us who have suffered a lifetime in chronic pain and suffering or persecution, satanic warfare, and the battle against our own sinful flesh, in our waiting this might seem too good to be true. The long waiting and suffering can cause some to begin to doubt God's faithfulness. In our land, there is that horrific practice called partial birth abortion, where a doctor will bring a baby to the point of birth and then kill it. But the Lord says that he is not that kind of evil physician overseeing a delivery. He says, will I bring a baby to the point of birth and not deliver it, says the Lord? Or will... Or will I who deliver close the womb, says your God? History has proven that God never forsakes his people. He did not leave Israel in slavery in Egypt. He did not leave Israel in Babylon. He did not leave his son in the tomb. And he will not forsake you who hope in Jesus. He will raise all of those who trust in his promise, he will raise them up on the last day. And verses 10 through 13 tell us that we can start our rejoicing now because it is certain that God will keep his his promises then. The future of Jerusalem is described like 
a nursing child at its mother's ample breast, where there is no chance of the milk running dry. It flows freely and in abundance, telling us that God's people may drink deeply without fear of, of any drought, and they may find delight in God's free-flowing comfort. Peace and wealth like a river will flow to them forever. And they will be as happy as a nursing child with a belly full of milk bouncing on its mother's lap. At least after it burps. It'll be as comforted as that baby on his mother's hip. That is how happy God's people will be when their redemption comes. But verse 14 breaks back in with the stark urgency of the matter. There are only two options. Those who respond to God's word in humility, that is, those who will, by grace through faith, receive the promise of this coming servant, who will redeem them through his own death and resurrection. Those who respond by trembling at this word will rejoice and flourish in the Lord's power, but those who reject this message, those who rebel against God, will receive his wrath. True worshipers flourish forever. False worshipers perish forever. So who and what is a true worshiper? Verses 18 through 21 tell us that true worshipers are those who come to Jesus Christ in faith. And we see in these verses that true worshipers are not restricted to ethnic Israelites. The invitation is open to all the nations of the earth. True worshipers are those who are gathered by the Lord to see his glory. And what does it mean to see the glory of God? It means to see the sign in verse 19. The Lord will establish a sign, a signal flag that he holds up for everyone to look at. And that flag, that signal, that sign is the display of his glory. And he will send his people into the nations carrying that sign to all those who have not heard about the Lord or seen his glory. These sent ones will proclaim his glory among the nations. And that sign is the glory of God, which someone must see and rejoice in in order to be saved, to be a true worshiper. And in verse 20, we find that those who respond to this sign in faith become members of God's family. They become brothers that are brought back to Israel. They even become priests to our God. They are worshipers that can enter into God's presence themselves. So what is this sign? We've seen it all the way through Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 10 through 11 says, On that day the root of Jesse, this descendant of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples, a sign for the peoples. The nations will look to him, this one man that God has established for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. And Jesus tells us that that sign is himself. The virgin-born Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus says in John 12, 32 through 33, As for me... 
If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Jesus being lifted up from the earth is not us worshiping him. He's talking about what kind of death he will die. That's the sign. That's the flag lifted up. When Jesus is put on that cross, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of his people, that is a message and a display of God's saving glory to all who will look upon it and believe. And everyone who hears it and sees it and rejoices in it and trembles before it in humble faith will become part of God's true people. Kings and priests unto our God. And so I would ask you this morning, are you resting all of your hope on Jesus Christ the Lord, crucified for your sins and risen from the dead? The proclamation of that sign is what is happening today around the globe. From those that we send to the Middle East, to this very sermon right now. Verse 19 says that God is sending survivors. Survivors, those who have escaped the wrath of God through trusting his promises. He is sending them to tell the nations about God's glory in Christ. And this is dangerous work. Isaiah mentions one nation that is known for its archers, those who draw the bow, probably referring to its military strength. They are an aggressive nation, and he is going to send his people into that kind of hostility and danger so that those people can see the glory of God and be saved. It's dangerous work, but it is necessary and urgent work because Paul tells us in Romans 10, that everyone who believes in Jesus as Lord, the Lord who died and rose again will be saved. But he reminds us that they cannot call on him if they don't believe in him, and they can't believe in him unless they hear about him, and they can't hear about him unless someone proclaims him, and no one will proclaim him unless they are sent. And that is why it is so urgent that we devote ourselves personally in our own lives, in our own financial giving and priority, to be getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. They can't be saved unless they hear the message of Christ. And so we as survivors have a responsibility to forsake our own comforts and to go hold up the sign that is Jesus so that all those who haven't heard of him might hear of him and believe. We've already read these last few verses of Isaiah, which ends in this final scene. And this will be the final scene as eternity begins. This will occur one day. There will be a magnificent resurrection of every human being that ever lived on the face of the earth. And they will be divided, all of us, into two people. Jerusalem and Babylon. And all those who belong to Babylon, including counterfeit worshipers, will be thrown with Babylon into the lake of fire, which is the second death. But all of God's people, the true worshipers, will be gathered to God to live forever in his presence, in a new heavens and a new earth. 
We will worship Him day and night forever, month by month, week by week, never ceasing in our glorification of God. And as the redeemed walk outside the thick walls of the new Jerusalem where the gates are always open, they will look into an eternal garbage dump, a lake of fire, and they will see the dead bodies of those who rebelled against God. Their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all humanity. And as those true worshipers see the final and eternal state of these rebels, they will shudder in gratitude and worship, remembering that this is the punishment that they deserved for all their rebellion against the Lord. And they will turn and see in their midst a lamb standing as though he had been slain. And this king who walks beside them will take them by the hand to guide them forever, and they will see that this hand is scarred by worms and by the fire in the nail holes that remain from the cross. And they will look from the hand into the loving face of Jesus, their King. And they will stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, who endured that wrath of God on the cross for them. And they will worship him forever. And the question for us is, will we be among them? Let's pray.